You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. As soon as J.C. and I rang the bell at Sonny Lemaire's house just outside of Nashville, all the dogs started to bark. He and his wife Mary held the dogs back, calling them by name, telling them to stay down and behave themselves. Coffee, tea, a bottle of water? What can we get, they asked. We settled into their cozy living room for this interview. With Sonny seated in a rocking chair, with a little dog, one of his rescues, all curled up in his lap. Sonny's success story as a bass player, singer, songwriter for the iconic group Exile is full of as many ups and downs as the band's long history together. Being in a band is a really fragile thing with all the egos and temperaments and everything that goes into the equation of touring and being together as long as we have. And the fact that we still really do like one another is a miracle in itself. (laughs) You know, because there are times we want to kill one another through the years, but we do love one another. Sonny is a great storyteller, and this interview is full of them. From playing his first guitar, yes, until his fingers bled, to the high school football coach who cussed him out for playing it, to what it felt like to experience Exile's worldwide exposure with their first number one smash, Kiss You All Over, to the band's string of hits and songwriting success at country music, this is one of those interviews you just can't stop listening to. Born Alfred William Lemaire, I asked Sonny where his lifelong nickname came from. I'm named after my dad, Alfred William Lemaire. He was a major in the Army. When I was born, they didn't want to call me Al or Little Al. So Sonny was the name that they gave me from the moment I was born. What's it like to be the son of a major? Was it a very military household? Give me a little picture of it. It was. Dad served in World War II. Unfortunately, he died very young. He was only 41, and he died in 1954. It's pretty life-changing. I was an only child. Wow. And my mom told me, I mean, repeatedly, repeatedly, she never remarried. And she said, you know, I married the man of my dreams. (laughs) And that was that. So it was me and my mom. What a loss that must have been for both of you. It was. Losing a parent at any age, I mean, I'm sure that for anybody that has lost a parent, I mean, it's a difficult time and such a life-changing experience. And to lose him so young, you know, when I was just perhaps really getting to know my dad. But I have lots and lots of pictures because he was an avid photographer. So I have many, many memories of us as a family. And by the way, you know, when I was three, we moved to Germany. This is in 1950. So World War II had only been over for five years. And we lived there for three years, you know, grew up there. And so were you on a military base? Yeah. It's a whole different life, isn't it? It was. It was. You know, and my, my dad took me to the base with him. And I had my helmet. I had my canteen. <laughs> I, had he not died, perhaps... I would probably have gone into the military, into the army or something like that. You experience a loss like that pretty early in your life. Yeah. Where did music come in for you? Right after my second year in high school, my sophomore year, a friend of mine on our little street that I grew up on in Jeffersonville, Indiana, a little street called Louis Street, started playing a guitar. And I would go to his house as he was learning. He was a little bit, he was a couple of years younger than me, but I thought it was cool he was learning to play the guitar. So I would go over to his house and watch him learn. 
So anyway, this summer day, we're walking down the street, and he came out, Gary Boyer was his name, he came out on the sidewalk. He said, what are you guys doing? You know, nothing. He said, well, I'm going to have a little band rehearsal, and would you guys like to come to this rehearsal? Life-changing, right? (laughs) Absolutely. So we did. And my friend that was learning to play the guitar was played fairly well. And so during this little rehearsal, they asked my friend if he'd like to join the band. He said, yeah, because he could play better than Gary could. So he would be the lead guitar player. And they looked at me and they said, well, would, you know, if you want to join the band, you have to play bass. And it was like, sure. So I begged my mom and went back and she agreed. We went to a pawn shop, bought oh, a bass guitar, a Kent bass guitar. I can't remember how much it was. The strings were really high up off the neck. It weighed about 12 pounds. My fingers bled, literally bled, but I wouldn't stop. Put the records on, learned that part, you know. I didn't even know what the notes were. Who were your influences then? As you're starting to play bass guitar, you join this band. Yeah. Did you want to be a rock guy right away? You know, all I knew is that playing music seemed like such an exciting thing. And I'm sure you've probably interviewed people, guys my age, that will tell you that probably one of the most seminal things that ever happened in their life was watching the Beatles on On Ed Ed Sullivan. Sullivan. And for young people that hear it, I'm sure maybe they've watched the clip and don't get it exactly. But that changed everything. It was like, for music, a sea change. It honestly was. It really, really was. So early on, my influences, of course, were... Paul McCartney, you know, on bass. And I loved Motown, for example, and I didn't know who the bass player was then, but of course, primarily it was James Jamerson. And I love Memphis stuff, you know, with uh, Otis Redding and all that, and of course, Duck Dunn in Memphis. So those styles, the, the, the guys that played like that, those were my big influences. So you've talked a little bit about this band in your neighborhood. What yeah. was the name of the group? The Scepters. So what happened to the Scepters, and how long did you stay with the Scepters, and did you go to college, or was music your life from that point on? The band started in 64, so I played all the way through high school. I also played sports. You know, I I ran track, and I played football. When I was a senior, for example, at our homecoming dance, our band was scheduled and got booked to play at our homecoming dance. Well, my football coach hated the fact that I didn't just eat, drink, sleep, football. I loved football. I loved to play. But, you know, what he didn't understand was I could have been in a full-body cast and wanted to play music. So anyway, after the game was over, as I was getting out of my football gear, trying to change to go play in the gym, I mean, he was up in my face. And he's, you know, he's, LaMare, you know, if you played, if you gave 110%, you wouldn't have enough energy to go play that dang on guitar you know, and I, I just sat there and looked at him and I want, you know, thought, you just, you're stupid. You don't, you don't understand. get it. You don't get it. You know, music had already become something that I had to do. So the band continued. You know, I went to college. I went to university at Bellarmine University in Louisville and played music in the band, you know, through college. It was after I graduated that I finally met a guy who was from Nashville, actually. I was playing in a hotel uh, in southern Indiana, in Clarksville, and met this guy from Nashville. His name was Dave Peel. 
and we're still great friends today. And he had a record deal out of Nashville on a very good independent label called Chart Records. And I met him and came to Nashville for the first time and then went on the road. And that was that. Talk to me a little bit about your first impression of Nashville. Going from southern Indiana and Louisville to Nashville, it was like a crossing this divide. You know, it was like coming to Mecca, Oz. And uh, when I arrived, I'd been turned on to this group called Area Code 615. Now, they were some of the best 18 musicians in town in those days. Charlie McCoy, among others. And they made a couple of records on Polygram label, I think. So I was listening to that. I wasn't a big country music fan, and I listened to that music, and I was flipped out with the musicianship from these guys, you know. So right away, you really appreciated oh, great musicianship. Absolutely. And Nashville, you know, lives and breathes great musicians. Totally. And I think songwriters on every corner who are all yeah. one better than the other, yeah, right? absolutely. Let's flash forward. Mm -hmm. You joined Exile in 1977. Yeah. Did you have to audition for that gig? Take us back to how that happened for you. When my daughter turned six years old, Nicole, or was getting ready to turn six, I had to put her in first grade. So I decided to come off the road, come back to Lexington, Kentucky. And there was a really dear friend of mine, still a great friend of mine named Doug Breeding, who played in a bowling alley bar called the Terrace Room. And I came back because I had worked some with him prior to going on the road all over the place. Came back to Lex, went to work with him in this bowling alley bar, put my daughter in first grade. Well, the lead guitarist for Exile, J.P. Pennington, would come into this club, this bar, all the time. And he would sit in with us. Now, I knew who he was, and I knew who Exile was. I mean, if you were from Lexington or Central Kentucky, you knew about the band at that point for sure. He would come in at least three nights a week and sit in. At the bowling alley at bar. At the bowling alley bar, you know. And I'll tell you this too. When I came back to Lexington, I was really disappointed in thinking that, well, my dream of making it in music may be over as far as big time. But I made a conscious decision that whatever I was going to play working with Doug, I was going to make it the best. I was going to have fun. I was going to do it professionally, not just be upset about it. So I think JP picked up on that, plus the way I played, the way I sang. So the next thing I know, I get a call one day from their piano player, Marlon Hargis. And again, Marlon and I had played together earlier on in Lexington for a short period of time. So he and I were friends. It's such an incestuous business, you know, you, isn't you it? You start knowing all these musicians, yes. you know, the cross-pollinization of everything. So he called me and said, hey, can you come over to my apartment? There's something I want to talk to you about. I said, sure. At that point in time, they weren't playing a lot. So on my way over to Marlon's apartment, I honestly was thinking, he wants to, to leave exile and come and join me and Doug. And I discussed it with my wife before I left because she said, what do you think he wants? And I said, I think he's quitting exile. So I go over there <laughs> with that mindset that he's, he's going to ask me. He says, I guess you're wondering why I called you over. I said, yeah, and I'm expecting him to say. And he said, our bass player has left. You know, we want you to join our band, Exile. 
It was like a deer caught in the headlights. <laughs> I sat there and I thought he was joking. I was just going to say, are you goofing I, on I me? really thought he was joking. Yeah. You know, I said, are you, are you kidding? He goes, no, really, we want you to join. And I was so shocked. All these things are running through my brain like, oh my God, you know. Yeah, I mean, how cool would that be? And eventually after I kind of gathered Snapped my wits. Snapped out of it, right? You know, he said, I guess you're thinking, you're wondering how much you know, you're going to get paid. I said, well, yeah. He goes, well, we've got quite a bit of expenses with our roadies and our equipment. He said, it's $75 a week. And again, it's like, I'm thinking he's, man, you're joking. My Come mouth. I, I wish we had the video camera going. I right. swear to God. And I said, you're joking, man. Come on. He said, no, really it's 75. I said, I can't, I can't do, do it. That. I can't support myself hardly, let alone a wife and a daughter. I said, I don't know, Marlon, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this chance of a lifetime and I can't do it. He said, well, go home, talk about it. Let's keep talking about this. So I go home. I tell my wife, they want me to join the band. She's freaking out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How much? (laughs) $75. (laughs) Like what? Way to burst the bubble. Right. So anyway, we, we kept discussing back and forth and I kept going, guys, there's no way. So what they came up with. Mike Chapman was their producer who wrote Kiss You All Over. He said, look, I'm going to put 75 in an account. You put 75. I pay him a whopping 150. And, you know, even, even that was ridiculous. Right. You guys could triple that, you quadruple know, it, and well, I still I was can't live on this. probably $400 a week at that point in 74 in this club. Playing in the bowling alley yeah, lounge. seriously. Yeah. But I said, okay. Because this opportunity of a lifetime is there. What do you do? So you did it at exactly the right time because here we go in 1978, seminal year for exile, your signature song, Kiss You All Over. Take us back to that moment when the song exploded. It was electrifying. It was everything that you can imagine and dream about. It was so mind-blowing and it's hard to take it all in in the moment when it's happening. Years go by when you can look back on it and, and reflect of just what a cataclysmic event that was. It, I mean, it changed our lives completely. I don't know what I'd do without you, babe. Don't know where I'd be. You're not just another love. I know you're everything to me. Every time I'm with you, baby, I can't believe it's true. When you lay in my arms, you do the things I can see it in my eyes, I can feel it in your touch You don't have to say a thing, just let me show how much Love you, need you, yeah I wanna kiss you up low Talk to me about the first time you ever heard yourself on the radio. Oh, my God. As I told you, when I joined the band for 150 bucks, you're wondering, well, how did I survive on 150 because we were playing clubs? Is the drummer and I, Steve, 
Getzman, we went to work for a landscaping company. So we're planting trees and shrubs on, you know. Cutting grass. Cutting grass. We were having a lunch break, and some guy has got a portable radio, a little radio. And all of a sudden, they play Kiss You All Over. And I'm sitting there on the grass. I'm dirty. And the song comes on. And Steve and I look at one another like in disbelief. And we don't say a word. You know, and you can't say, because I didn't want to draw attention to nothing. And so we're sitting there, and I'm freaking out inside. I'm literally freaking out. And, you know, it's like, like, oh, my God, I can't even believe this is happening. It's like everything that you've ever dreamed growing up as a young musician, hearing songs on the radio, loving that, and it's one of your own. Yeah, and you turn it up, you roll the windows <sighs> down, and it's your song. My God, that was the first time I heard it. And the second experience, which was really crazy, we get a call from Mike Chapman's office, our producer. They want us to perform on Midnight Special. And Midnight Special was the pop rock and roll show of the day. In Los Angeles, in right? Los, in L.A. You know, you didn't have MTV or anything like that. It was the show on Friday. That was the deal, man. And to appear on that was a big, big deal. Well, I think I've seen the video clip of that. If that yeah. ain't a 70s quintessential outfit that you guys all have on, I don't know what to I, say. That's a whole other deal, <laughs> being embarrassed by that whole thing. Some of the clothing choices. It's were, all chronicled for people to oh see, God, for your little could, girl to see for the rest of their oh, life. Oh, she, right? she has seen it and let, you will never let me live that down too. So we fly to LA. We've quit our job on landscaping now, all right? So we fly to LA, get off the plane, and there's a couple limo drivers there with, you know, the signs, exile. Wow, this is cool. So we walk towards the carousel to get our luggage in those days, and there are people there to get our luggage. Okay. And there's two limos there. Things are changing, Sonny. There's two limos. And two young ladies from Mike Chapman's office are there to greet us. So we pair up in the limos. And we're heading to Sunset, where we're going to check in at the Hyatt House on Sunset. So on the way, we get off the interstate, get off the expressway, and I think we're going down Lancashire, and we stop at a stoplight, and nobody has the radio on. And we opened a bottle of champagne in the back of the limo, by the way. So I'm sitting next to the door, the passenger door. I turn on the radio. I swear to God, as soon as I hit that radio, the song came on the air. Man, I jumped out of the car. And we're stopped at a red light, you know, and I'm yelling back, turn, turn it on, turn it on. And they hear it. They jump out of the car. People think, like, what the hell's going on here? You know, these guys are freaking out. We went from clubs to going out on tour initially with, I think we were out with like Dave Mason and Eddie Money, people like that. And then as the song was really getting ready to turn number one is when we went on the road with Aerosmith. That was just a whole mind-blowing experience, the whole thing. Let's talk a little bit about what that's like for a band. At one point, you're talking about cheap bars in Lexington, Kentucky, and then you're talking about opening and going on tour with Aerosmith, with Fleetwood Mac. Yes. These are 60,000-plus stadiums sometimes, too. The first night we played with Aerosmith was in Indianapolis what was then the biggest arena there, which was Market Square Arena. And I had a friend of mine that was grew up with me that was in the, my high school band, The Scepters, right? 
he came with me up to Indianapolis and he had a camera and he walked out on stage before we were introduced and the audience in anticipation started stomping their feet and clapping and I'm standing backstage and I, I literally was so freaked out. It was hard for me to walk out on stage and you walk out in the dark and as soon as the audience realizes there's somebody there that really went crazy and he was trying to load his camera and he dropped the film and tried to load it again you know i mean he was freaking out too and he had film I, i've got it somewhere of us on stage that night capturing that moment and it, it's you know and through those pictures i remember just being literally stunned I had a chance to talk to Stevie Nicks years ago. Yeah. One of the things she said to me was, Candy, I wish I could put you in my pocket and take you out on one of those great big stages. Yeah. She was talking about like Candlestick Park and experiences like that where literally it's 60,000 people, Absolutely. you know? And she said, yeah. the music sounds different, right? Yeah. As yeah. you're playing it. Yeah. And she said, but you're still able to connect yeah. all the way to the back. Yeah. And what's it like when people know the words to your songs? Again, amazing. To watch them and hear them singing along to your music is quite a thrill. I never get over being kind of awestruck at the fact that I'm looking out there and they're singing along. And it, these are songs that, you know, whether it was Kiss You All Over that we didn't write, but still are, you know, we created that in the studio or the songs we've written. It never gets old, does never. it? Never. I mean, how cool is that? The other flip side to that is life on the road. Yeah. Hard stuff. It is. Touring is exhausting. What was your experience? We were out easily 310, 15 days a year. And so it was just, it was just a constant thing. JP and I, as the chief songwriters of the band, we would catalog ideas out on the road. It was, it, for us, it was too crazy on the road to write. Just too nuts. And when we would have a day in between or something is when we would write, you know, we would literally sit down to write. But it was this constant cycle of touring and writing and recording and touring and writing and recording. And it really, really was exhausting. And it took a toll. I'm learning so much about the art of the co-write, yeah. <laughs> right? And it sounds yeah. like you and JP had a certain chemistry when it came to being able to write together. Yeah. How did that work? Initially, there was another guy in the band named Mark Gray. And Mark was in the band a couple of years during the pop days. And just as we were leaving pop music, getting into country, Mark left to pursue his solo deal. But Mark and I had really hit it off and had started writing together. JP wrote solo most of the time early on. But he and Mark got together and wrote, Take Me Down and The Closer You Get which we recorded as a pop band on one album, released both those songs as singles, and they did nothing for us. And of course, you know, Alabama later records both of those huge number one hits. <laughs> All you know. of a sudden, some of these songs you're writing you know, become big hits at country. Absolutely. So Mark had this relationship, writing relationship with JP, and it was really Mark that suggested, he said, hey, let's the three of us sit down and start writing. And we did. And we wrote what was to become the first Exile country single, which was The High Cost of Leaving. It's the high cost of leaving, I'm living, I've let it all slip 
And then Mark left literally within days to pursue his solo career. And JP and I, because we clicked so well in that session, just started to write together. And we really clicked from that point on. It's interesting because there has to be a certain chemistry between the co-writers. Do you hear the melody first? The lyrics come? You talked a little bit about being on tour and chronicling things. You know, do you keep a journal? How does it work? Yeah, definitely kept a journal. Just and jotted down ideas. Ideas and phrases. Ideas and ideas constantly. Because, you know, you're like a sponge, you know, you're you're hearing conversations, you're reading something, you're watching TV, you go to a movie. All these places, you know, as a songwriter, your antenna is up and you're just picking up on things. Let's talk about the decision to go country. The key for you, I think, was finding the right producer. It was. And our manager, who was out of L.A., a guy named Jim Morey, big-time manager, um, he recognized uh, the, you know, our, our potential in country music. When he suggested the idea, I thought he'd lost his mind. You know, he flew to Lexington to talk to us specifically and talk us into pursuing a country career. The more I thought about it, I thought, okay, all right, maybe he is right about this. So he met up with Buddy Killen. Now, Buddy, for those that don't know, was the owner, the head of the largest independent publishing company in Nashville at that time called Tree Publishing, which now is Sony, you know, Sony Tree ATV. Buddy had produced Joe Tex, some R&B artists, as well as country. So Jim, our manager, approached Buddy and asked if he would be interested, explaining what was going on. And Buddy jumped at the opportunity and said, I'd love to. But Jim said there's one caveat, a deal breaker. These guys play on their own music. You know, they're not going to come in here and have studio musicians play on their stuff. And that was a big, big thing. You know, we're not studio musicians per se. We play on our own songs. We're good enough to do that. But just like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Who or the Kinks, what makes them different besides the songs they write and the way they sing is the way they all play together. So we were adamant about that. And Buddy agreed. This started to open up an entirely new world for the band. And all of a sudden, country was where you should be. And the number one song started coming. We had tried so hard in pop music after Kiss You All Over. And having success in Europe, but not in the States. Having success and having hits in country music was validation that, yeah, we are writing good songs. They can be hits for us. That's 20 years, by the way. And they were, yeah. We're talking about 1983, yeah. Woke Up in Love, yeah. first number one song, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then nine consecutive number one songs, yeah. three gold records, yeah. multi-platinum singles, 13 ACM CMA award nominations. Yeah. You guys must have felt like we are finally here. It was quite a ride for sure to have played on the CMA awards. So we were in the thick of it for sure. It was really amazing. There was so much unrest There was so much clash. There was so much creativity all at the same time in exile. Yeah, there was. But you managed somehow to hang in there. Yeah. What was it about your personality that made that work for you? How did you manage that? Well, that's a big question, you know. I was so shy prior to getting in my first little band. 
believe it or not. And I said, I could never be Elvis Presley, but I could be Paul McCartney, meaning I was a band guy. You know, I could play in a band. If you stuck me in the band, I can walk out on stage. Otherwise, I'm not walking out there because I can't. I mean, the first little band I was in, I was telling you, I literally was so terrified to walk out on a stage and play. But through all the things that we learned, that I learned with playing with Exile, performing, as the turmoil went on, you know, and we had JP left and Les Taylor left and... So I, many people coming our and two going. Lead singers all together, time. 20 people, I think, well, came I, and went. As they came and went, for sure. Yeah. You know, I just felt that there was more to offer. I guess part of it was I wanted to prove them wrong also. You know, the people that left, well, I'm going to show you. I can still do this. There were occasionally moments of doubt for sure, you know, but we did succeed to a point. You talked about walking out on a stage by yourself yeah. versus walking with four guys yeah. and being part of a group. Yeah. Is it the sum of the parts that turns you on? Absolutely. You hear other people talk about, yeah, joining a band was so cool because girls, girls, right? I, I'm telling you, honestly, the appeal of music for me was playing the music, being on stage with those guys. Because when you start playing and that music is blowing by you, around you, it's all there. It is the most amazing, glorious feeling for me. I've had guests on our show say that's when you're in the zone. Absolutely. Are you a singer, a bass player, or a songwriter? I'm all three. If you could only parts. be one, what would you be? Uh, you know, my first love was playing music for sure. I admit that. You know, I didn't come to songwriting right away or singing. You know, I sang backup. So playing was the first thing that really got my interest. I have a quote here from you. It's about songwriting. And you yeah. say, the song is everything. Yeah. What has it been like for you to live here in Nashville and to be part of this community? It has been the most amazing experience. When we decided to end the band in the first part of 94, and I was going to be just songwriting, that was it. Every day, riding from here into Nashville, going across the Cumberland and looking at Nashville skyline, all I could think about was Bob Dylan stood right over there and took that picture of Nashville skyline. And I'm here. I'm a part of it. It really made me just come alive. And I thought, I cannot believe that I'm a part of this whole thing. It was such a wonderful experience. It was daunting task. You know, when you come to this town to write you or gotta to play, bring it. you better bring your big boy or big girl pants, you know, because <laughs> this is the deal right here. Let's talk about some of the songs that you, as a sure. songwriter, are most proud of. Okay. Tell me what they are. The first number one that I wrote was the second Exile single that was number one, you know, I Don't Want to Be a Memory. So that's very special. I don't want to be a memory Just a shadow in your mind I want to be the one you always need Not the one you left behind I don't want to be a notch in your handle
Can you tell me a little bit about the story behind that song? I cannot recall now whether it was JP or me that had that title. But regardless, it evoked this music that both of us started playing, you know, kind of simultaneously. And the lyric fell out. It was such an easy process at that time. We were in such a sync with one another that the song just kind of fell out. Let's talk a little bit about what it feels like to have another artist Mm. breathe life into a song you have written. Because we're talking about big hits for people like Diamond Rio and Sons of the Desert and Restless Heart. And I mean, the list goes on. What does that feel like? It's pretty gratifying. And it's humbling. I'm good friends with a lot of the people that cut our songs. I loved Restless Heart. And to this day, they're one of my favorite groups. So when they cut When She Cries... To have one of my songs be a part of their catalog, I mean, I thought that is amazing because they've got a great catalog too. That song, when I heard the recording, my co-writer and I, Mark Beeson, I was in town. We went into the record company and they played me the cut. I'm telling you, I was stunned because it was very pop for the time. And you know, Mark is looking at me, Beeson is going, I don't know what this is going to do. And not only that, Larry Stewart, their lead singer, had left the band and John Dietrich, their drummer, was singing it. So, you know, is, it, is this the kiss of death or what? <laughs> and it turned out to be one of the biggest songs they ever had. And I can tell you, I can still hear that song coming out of the radio. It was a really big hit. Oh, yeah. You guys decide, okay, so we're going to try this again with a reunion in yeah. November of 2008. It was a benefit. It was a benefit yeah. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. Lexington, Kentucky. Talk about that. I think it was a place called the Blue Moon, which my old friend, Doug Breedy, who played at the Terrace Room with, he owned this club. So one of our exiles' old tour managers had had a serious motorcycle accident in 2007, and he really needed help with medical bills and everything else. So I was on the phone to Doug because this guy, this old tour manager, was friends with both of us. He and I were talking about what we could do to raise money for this guy. His name was Raymond Patrick. And initially I said, well, maybe you and I, Doug, could get back together and do something. And we kept talking about that. And then I said, well, boy, if Exile could get back together. He said, man, that would be the thing. He said, if you can get, do that, we We're can raise, raise a some lot money. Of money. So I started calling the guys individually. And one would say, well, if you get so-and-so to do it, I'll do it. You know, and the other one would say, if you get so-and-so, literally. So I I worked the band. You were the ringmaster. I was was working the room. (laughs) So I got everybody to agree that we would do this one show on St. Patrick's Day. And we rehearsed. We went into that club and we played that show. And it was like, my brain just exploded. 
uh, you know, because I couldn't believe we were back on stage playing the music. And, at, you know, the people went crazy. They literally went crazy. And my youngest daughter, Chloe, who was seven, she grew up knowing that daddy wrote songs. But she had no idea about dad this other whole life. As she got a little bit older, I would tell her, you know, daddy used to play in a band. Oh, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I take her with me to this, you know, she's out at this table, this high-rise table, and her eyes are this big around watching, you know, this whole experience. Anyway, it was such a success that at the end of it, as we're kind of gathering together after the whole thing, we thought, man. That was fun. That was fun. <laughs> Do you think we could do this again? And so that led to the Third and Lindsley show and us going, let's try. Let's see what we can do. And here we are. You know, I love the description of your little girl because Man. she probably at that very moment discovered my father is a rock star. Well, I, <laughs> you know, I don't, I, you know, I took her on the road with me a lot, by the way. And so she got to experience the bus and, you know, the crowds and everything. And, and um, for her, it was interesting because for a kid, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, my dad does this now. It's, it's kind of old hat. But at that moment, she was pretty impressed with her old daddy. A lot of years have gone by since yeah. 2008. Yeah. And you guys have been together on and off for so very long. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the bigger picture. What do you think brings you back together again all the time? Well, it has to be the music and really the way we care about one another, honestly. Because being in a band is a really fragile thing with all the egos and temperaments and everything that goes into the equation of touring and being together as long as we have. And the fact that we still really do like one another is a miracle in itself. <laughs> you know, because there are times we want to kill one another through the years, but we do love one another. Sonny, as we come toward the end of our interview, yeah. and thank you so much for your time here in your beautiful living room, what do you wish you knew when you first got started in oh, this crazy man. business? I'm glad I didn't know what I didn't know. Because this whole thing is the biggest crapshoot you could ever undertake. Whether it's songwriting, trying to be an artist, whatever it is. Talent plays a part of it. Only a part. But you've got to have some luck involved with all of this too. The stars have to line up. And they rarely do. For all of the success that we have had, there's thousands, millions of people that have rolled into this town in Nashville with the same dream, and they'll never achieve it. And that's the hardest thing to handle is to have that kind of passion and dream, and it doesn't come true. Final question. Yeah. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in country music, and in your case, in pop and in rock, has been what? Persistence, absolutely. Dogged persistence. Sonny Lemire, I want to say thank you so much for you, telling me your story, telling our listeners your story, and inspiring everybody with it. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, this is Jay-Z Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. And that was the fascinating story of Exile's Sonny Lemire. Imagine having a career so wide that it takes you to stages in front of rock, pop, and country audiences. Sonny has done it all, and I wanted to ask him to pass on some advice regarding his experience performing for all of them. 
What would you tell a young artist who might be having some crossover success about performing for the different genres of audiences? Are there differences? That's a great question. In this day and age, I don't think there's any difference anymore. Back when we were starting to have success, when we crossed over to country music, the audiences were a bit more calm, not completely, but a bit more. But as it went on, we started seeing the same kind of audiences. People that are listening, avid country music, are also listening to, to pop. And so the audiences pretty much, after a bit, turned out to be the same. You know, the loyalty factor of country audiences is a big deal, though. That is one of the things that has allowed us to continue because that loyalty remains. And that is pretty amazing in itself. Sonny is right. And it doesn't matter whether you're performing for five people or 5,000. Every single audience deserves the same energy and enthusiasm. But how do you figure out how to make that connection with your fans? Getting your set list in order is a really good place to start. And I'm not just talking about your list of songs. There should be a lot of other things included in it so that you can make the most of any audience you get to perform in front of. Here is my set list checklist. Number one, your list of songs in order. That goes without saying. And make sure you plan this ahead so that your band isn't caught off guard with your order of music. Next, make sure you have the keys listed next to each song. If you don't play an instrument, this will be more for your band members, but it's always a great idea to have those written in, just in case someone blanks on the key last minute. Number three, include a moment to introduce your band. They deserve acknowledgement, and it's also a great time for you to take a moment to catch your breath. Number four, ask fans to follow you on social media. This is the perfect opportunity to get a bump in engagement. Tell your fans to take out their phones and follow you. You'll be surprised at how many actually do it. Number five, thank the venue for having you. That's a no-brainer and a way to show the people who booked you just how much you appreciate having this opportunity. Number six, if you have a merchandise table, mention it from the stage and let fans know that you were eager to meet them there after your set. Having a merch table is also a great way to make a little extra money. Finally, reserve a moment in your set list to mention your next show. If you've made some new fans during your performance, chances are they'll be looking for another opportunity to come out and see you. Add all of these things into your set list, print it out, tape it to the stage, and you will be ready to give your best performance. More wisdom you can use from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. Inspired by bass player, singer, songwriter for the iconic, legendary group, Exile, Sonny Lemaire. If you liked country music success stories, check out our website. Give our podcast a follow and leave a review. Follow us on social as well, at Country Music Success Stories. Easy enough, right? We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.